Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners. Tonight's story is going to take us back to 2005 and to the city of Windsor, Ontario. This is a story of obsession, manipulation, brutality, and also of institutional failure. The climax of the story is going to take place in a hospital's recovery room where 36-year-old nurse Lori Dupont is assigned. Her ex-boyfriend, the 50-year-old anesthesiologist named Mark Daniel, works in the hospital's operating room. Given the hand-in-hand nature of the OR and the recovery room, Lori and Mark have that awkward experience of having to maintain some kind of professional relationship after the breakdown of a personal one. But this certainly wasn't a normal relationship and was far from a typical breakup. Lori had been stalked, harassed, and intimidated by the doctor. And despite her complaints to the hospital and to the police, Dr. Mark Daniel remained free to do the absolutely unthinkable to Lori and calmly walk away from it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, Madeleine Klein and I will discuss the murder of nurse Lori Dupont, committed by Dr. Mark Daniel. Lori Dupont knew she was in danger. She turned to the law for protection, but the law wasn't quick enough. The Windsor, Ontario nurse was murdered in the hospital where she worked. Her alleged killer, a doctor at the same hospital. Ms. Madeleine Klein, this is our third round post-baby. The baby is sleeping soundly in another room, I believe. She is. She's snoozing upstairs. We we were five weeks on Wednesday, and uh, yeah, she's she's doing good. We're both learning, <laughs> uh, learning some patience and something that I have never had. So that's <laughs> that's a real curveball for me. <laughs> well, it's a very exciting time for everybody, but we're here to talk about something uh, far less pleasant as your baby. This story that we're going to get into tonight has to be one of the darkest most just like troubling stories I think I've ever heard. And shockingly enough, everyone I've mentioned this story to, it's completely new to them. A lot of people don't seem to know the story of Laurie Dupont and Mark Daniel. No, same here. I mentioned it to my friend today and she had no idea. Which is She was like, how is that story not bigger? Yeah, I get why I wouldn't know it, but you're not that far from there and you work in a hospital. So you would think this would be a story people working in hospitals would know of. And I worked in the operating room, which is in close proximity to the recovery room. Wow. And, and you're, you're not a nurse. Yeah. Like your job title wouldn't be nurse, is it? No, my job title was operating room attendant. But you would work I, with nurses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was It was actually, I really enjoyed my time in the OR. It was, it was a lot of fun where mm-hmm. I worked with, yeah, lots of doctors, lots of nurses. And it was, it was good. But again, interesting and surprising that you don't know this story because this takes place next to an operating room, in a recovery room, in a similar situation that you would have been in a million times, I'm sure, in your day job and that your coworkers would have been in. Yet it's not like a cautionary tale, I guess, for people in that industry. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Like this story didn't even ring a bell when I, when you sent me all the information about it. So like I had never heard of it ever. Mm. And yeah, while reading it, it was like, it's, I was like, wow, you know, every like hospitals across the country operate the same way. Interesting. So yeah, 
Yep. I've only learned of it because my brother is a physician, a Dr. Bonaparte in Ottawa. Shout out to my brother. But he, he had told me this story and he's like, there's this one story that you don't hear a lot uh, um, about a, a doctor who killed a nurse that he had been stalking. And I was like, wow. And I, that led me to Google and that led me to article after article and each one just kind of painting a darker and more disturbing picture than the last. Um, Down the rabbit hole. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. So let's get into telling the story. I, th I figure we should start kind of at the end and work our way back. That seems to be the way that um, will make the most sense. But this is going to be relating to the to the stabbing death of Laurie DuPont, who was murdered on November 12th of 2005 at Hotel de Grasse Hospital, which is a 313-bed hospital located in downtown Windsor, Ontario. Oh, that's really small, 313 beds. That's what I was going to ask you. Is I, I wouldn't know whether you told me 20-bed or a 7,000-bed hospital. In my mind, that just it's the same thing. <laughs> An average one would be at least like six or seven hundred beds, and and I think that's an it's an older building. It's right downtown Windsor, so it's you know maybe it, maybe it's maybe that's why it's smaller. And then it seems like across the country, hotel um, hospitals seem to be undersized, and they're always expanding. I was at two hospitals for appointments over the last like two months, and both of them were like undergoing renovations to have these massive additions put on them. So well, and I have to remember that like. There's probably multiple hospitals in Windsor. Like there's only two hospitals in Regina. Mm. So they kind of have to have large capacities. Mm. But in Windsor, there's probably like seven or eight. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't know how big Windsor is. Mm. Well, let's get into it. Let's go through the events of November 12th of 2005. Um, so this the story largely starts at 8 a.m. When Lori DuPont arrives to her shift, she works in the post anesthetic care unit, which people call the recovery room. She's a nurse in that area of the hospital, which to me, it seems my understanding of it is when someone's done receiving an operation in the operating room, they would then be brought in to the recovery room where they would recover from, you know, their surgery and the medicine they would have been given. Is, is that right? Yeah. It's usually called PACU, but I had no idea until we did this story. I had no idea that stood for post anesthetic care unit. I just, I always thought it was like, pack you. What, why did we call the recovery room that? And I could never figure it out, but now I know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's almost always like on the exact same floor, just adjacent to the operating room. And that's where people recover. So because... someone would get, yeah, get surgery in the operating room and then they just wheel you into the recovery room and yeah. monitor you for a couple hours until you're, you know, able to be brought back to your room or whatever the case may be. That's so, right. Just because so... anesthetic's so hard on the body. Mm, so yeah. and i mean surgery is kind of a big deal so you should yeah, be monitored it is kind of a big deal in the recovery room due, due to the nature of what's happening there it would be an area that would be seen as like um you know quiet uh yeah. there shouldn't be a lot going on in the recovery room it's just kind of like like the name implies a safe space quiet space to recover. yeah it should it should be yeah fairly mm. low-key and but you know some people do get violent coming out of anesthesia just confused and stuff yeah confused mm. and just like anxious i think okay but yeah, that makes sense yeah so sometimes people will wake up throwing fists oh yeah, yeah. um <laughs> well this happens on again as i said saturday november 12th saturday is something that makes it unique saturdays were unique at the hospital as they'd have far less surgeries scheduled and far less staff on hand so typically the recovery room would have 
10 nurses working at one time at this hospital. But on Saturday, there was just two. And on this particular day, it was Lori DuPont and her coworker and friend, Vivian Bitonti. Um, so a very small staff uh, on a Saturday. So skeleton crew, as you, as you describe it. And also, as you described at most hospitals, it is the same in this is that the the uh, recovery room was right next to the actual operating room, which would have had several nurses and staff, but the two areas were divided. So there was like kind of like the, the main operating room, a set of doors that led to this long recovery room. Uh, so they, they would be two separate spaces. So the staff wouldn't have like wouldn't be able to see each other directly, but they're just, you know, just a short little trip. Uh, short little trip away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we should talk about the vibe in the room just to give a sense of, of what's going to happen. So w- when Lori arrives to the nursing station, she runs into, again, her other the other nurse on staff, her friend Vivian. There was weird vibes because they learned that Lori's ex, who she had a very nasty breakup with that we're going to talk about, was the anesthesiologist that was on staff. His name is Dr. Mark Daniel. And what was weird about this is Lori and Mark's breakup that we're, we're going to talk about was so bad that the all the other nurses kind of knew we got to serve as a buffer between these two. There's a lot going on and we don't want him around us or him around her. So if Dr. Daniel comes near, we're going to, you know, uh, I'll, I'll kind of stand in the middle and be the one who talks. So he does. So Lori doesn't have to interact with them. They, they were worried about him being there and that set a weird vibe, but there was a large surgery planned. So they were kind of thinking, you know, it's, there may be a good shot. We don't even see him because there's such a big surgery happening. He's probably going to be, uh, going to be pretty busy. Do you, do you want to give us maybe just the basics about the relationship between Lori and Dr. Daniel? Uh, they were, to say the very least, it was like the most toxic relationship mm-hmm. ever. Um, they were together kind of on and off for about two years and they had broken up in the previous February. This happened mm-hmm. in November. Um, but he just like absolutely could not get over her. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually married to another woman mm-hmm. and like still even after they broke up and he went back to his wife he would still try and contact her and he just like he could not get over it mm-hmm. and what nailed the the final nail in the coffin for them breaking up for good was he attempted suicide mm-hmm. and like blamed her for it yeah he att- attempted suicide and, and did time in the same hospital psychiatric unit then was off work for a while he had just at the the time of the events we're talking about now he had only returned to work think like a month or two prior to this so he was still just kind of working his way back into the you know the regular flow of the day today this is the first time Lori and dr mark daniel would be working the same shift on a saturday which again is unique because there's so many less people there he's not you know there's not eight other nurses kind of standing between them he's going to be a good chance if he comes into the recovery room he's going to be face to face with her so obviously a weird vibe in the room it's like you know there's a saying like you don't date people that you work with um yeah this story and this is why yeah this is like beyond like worst case scenario is the story we're going to be talking about tonight 
So Lori's shift was supposed to be from 8.30 to 4.30. She arrives just after eight o'clock, gets to her desk, learns that Dr. Daniels is on that day, uh, hopes that they don't end up seeing him, but only 15 minutes into her shift, so just about quarter to nine, nine Mark Daniel walks into the, the recovery room. It wouldn't be normal for him to show up there first thing in the morning. Um, he did, and he approaches the nursing station, which is kind of like the little desk area that the nurses um, working in the recovery room would be, have their computers and their files at and stuff. He approaches, um, not for any particular reason, he just kind of makes small talk. And of, of course, um, Lori does what she always does. She just kind of looks off to the side and ignores him. But he starts uh, making small talk with Vivian, the other, the other nurse that's on duty. But what's been reported by Vivian is that as they're talking, he's not looking at Vivian. He's just staring at Lori, who's ignoring him, while having this kind of awkward small talk with Vivian. She kind of is, is trying to end the conversation with him just to get him out of there because it's, um, it's very uncomfortable for her and even more so for Lori. Um, when she finally kind of hints to like, all right, we got to like get on with it. There's a surgery about to start that you're involved in. He's like, okay, I'm going to go see if, uh, if my patients arrived, I'm you know, I'm out of here. And he walks off from the recovery room into the operating room. And the, again, the way they're laid out is he would leave the nursing station, walk across the recovery room, which is a series of, of beds and spots for beds go out a set of doors. And then he would be in the area that the operating room was in. They didn't watch him walk away every step of the way, but th their understanding as he walked in that direction is he's gone off to the operating room. He has a surgery starting, you know, in a couple minutes. So, you know, we're, hopefully we won't see him again for the rest of the day. Um, I think the next part of what gets Lori out of her desk, may, maybe you can describe that better because you've probably done things like this before. Well, she needed to just like prep for the patient to get there and all that stuff. So she walked to like a supplies room. Um, which was obviously on on the route to the uh, the operating rooms, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's just it's got a bunch of uh, stuff in it for probably um, like soaker pads and suction tubing and whatever mm -hmm. else they need just, to recover a patient. Yeah. yeah, the stuff you would imagine like in a drawer in a hospital. She's gone to like a little area to get that stuff, so she has to walk across the recovery room to get to this little like supply closet, or whatever it is, and mm -hmm. now. Without seeing like kind of a, a graph of the recovery room, it's hard to explain this, but in the center of the recovery room, there's two large pillars that are just kind of like within, you know, the, the way the building was made, they're kind of supporting the roof or whatever. Um, as she's walking towards the supply room, she has to walk past these pillars that are just in the center of the room. They're not especially large, but the spoiler alert, I guess, is that they're large enough to conceal a person hiding behind one. As Lori passes one of the, um, the the support pillars within the building that are in the center of the recovery room, uh, Mark Daniel, Dr. Daniel, steps out from behind it. He had been kind of hiding himself behind it out of view of, of Lori and Vivian at the nursing station. Uh, he doesn't seem to say anything, but he's holding what's been described as a dagger or a military dagger, which is different than a knife. I've also heard it described as a bayonet, which would be like you know, a long knife that you'd have on the front of like a rifle in like the Civil War yeah. or something. Um, he steps out from where he was kind of hiding himself behind this pillar. Of course, she, I'm sure she's shocked and startled. He doesn't say anything and immediately begins stabbing her. 
Vivian sees the whole thing as it as it happens from the nursing station, and she starts wailing and running towards Mark, who's stabbing Lori, not saying a word. And she's immediately down on the ground. And by the time she gets from the nursing station to across the room where they are, um, Mark is is on his knees next to her, stabbing her. And he just looks up at Vivian as she approaches him, screaming. And he doesn't say anything. He just lets go of the knife, which is still stuck in Lori, stands up as if nothing happens, and just walked out of the room as if nothing had happened. Uh, Vivian is left um, hysterical with Lori motionless and just um, in grave danger with given the amount of blood that's uh, that's coming out of her. That's horrifying. Just the idea of him stepping out from behind the pillar is like a scene from a horror movie. And so calmly, like he was just so calm, cool and collected. It's mm -hmm. this, yeah. And this is first thing in the morning before a major surgery that he's supposed to be running. It, she would have been completely caught off guard. But by the sounds of it, where he walks out from behind the pillar, it's she wouldn't even had a chance to take off. He was like in her face immediately. Yeah. Very like deliberately, like steps out and begins stabbing her like it happened instantly it the attacks took seconds she ended up being stabbed seven times so that's you know that's a very quick attack let's get into the the initial response of how news of what had happened travels through the hospital and we'll start to follow the search for mark daniel so of course it's it's vivian and lori alone in the recovery room lori on the ground unresponsive motionless, bleeding profusely from several stab wounds. Vivian manages to pick up a phone and call the uh, the hospital switchboard to report what happened to security. And now this whole thing with like the different codes that go, you, you, again, you've probably heard some of this stuff. So maybe you walk us through what people in the hospital would have heard through the intercoms. Well, first a code white was called, which is a violent patient or mm -hmm. a family member, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so the code white was called and that would have sent security to the unit. And mm -hmm. then immediately after a code blue was called, which means like the patient is dying and the, the respiratory team usually comes when, or I shouldn't say usually the respiratory team always comes when a code blue is called. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so that was the second, second code that was called and that would have sent at least at the hospital I work at, um, it would have sent the respiratory team and I'm not sure who else. It sounds like it at this hospital, any doctor that heard this code, and if they were available, they went. That's what I got from, yeah, from like, reading. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed that Claude Blue was understood to be like, someone's about to die. And if you're a doctor, get down here. Like, yeah. You know, code blue in the recovery room. Um, so it's like, you know, doctors are charging there. And, and the code white, as you described, which like would be like a violent patient or family member causing trouble or something. I've seen quote uh, some of the staff that heard that code white in the recovery room quoted as saying like, it just doesn't make sense because that's not an area where there would be like a violent incident. Like, you know, code yeah, white is normally rare. like emergency room or uh, like like somewhere where there's going to be like families and patients that are more active, the recovery room wouldn't be a spot where typically that that kind of thing. There's not going to be a group of family members in there or something like that. Right. Yeah. Like it it can happen, obviously. Um, 
but it's just very seldom, very, mm -hmm. very seldom. Yeah. So as the code white, then code blue go out in pretty rapid succession, um, not a lot of doctors on staff because it's a Saturday, but two doctors very quickly arrive, find Lori in a pool of blood on the floor in the recovery room. They get her on a stretcher and just move her into the room next door, which of course is the operating room. So she's, I guess, in the right spot for this to happen. They get her to the operating room, but it's pure chaos because the people trying to save Lori, they know her, the nurses that are assisting them. It's like, not only is it their coworker, in some cases, it's like one of their best friends that had just been attacked. Like, so there's, you know, pure chaos, people crying and screaming, but also frantically trying to save their friend, despite it being from the very beginning, obviously it was a lost cause. She was stabbed seven times and it is said that three of those stab wounds on their own, uh, regardless of any of the other wounds would have been fatal. Two of the, two of the stab wounds pierced her heart and that's a fatal wound. And the other one, um, cut her Aurora aorta. And like that, I could, I can see why it was so bloody. Like that's, that's they are the, the aorta is like the main flow of blood, right? That's like the highway yeah. of your veins. Pretty much. Yeah. So when someone oh. like when there's like the stab wound in a horror movie and blood is just spraying everywhere, that's like probably like showing what an Aurora aorta cut would be. It would, it would be surreal. Like it would probably be as i don't know what word to use uh, as like as surreal and bloody as a horror movie mm -hmm. just in yeah. real life and that is how it was described the blood loss that was in the recovery room and you know surrounding her as she was brought there was described as being like a scene out of a out of a horror movie well remember uh, that that like the the operating room as a rule isn't a a trauma center like the ER probably sees some crazy stuff like that. But by the time people get up to the operating room, even for an emergency surgery, things have kind of settled down. Like, like they're stabilized a, or whatever. Yeah. Or, but yeah, like this, this whole scene, like no one could have prepared for it. And especially mm -hmm. these poor nurses who had no, like they probably weren't used to traumatic events like this, like mm. where you have to, um, like react right away. So yeah, that would just be awful. And especially because like you, you don't expect stuff like this to happen in the ER, but they're more prepared for it. Right. Mm -hmm. They, it's the emergency room, Yeah. but getting ready for a completely different surgery that was scheduled and then dealing with this, that would just be, yeah. that would be insane. Mm -hmm. And then add on top of it again, is you're treating you know a them. friend. Yeah. That. Yeah, and, and then I'm just thinking of Vivian, if she was involved in treating Lori, if she had just witnessed that and then minutes later is, is helping and like, and I'm thinking she probably was because it would have, this all would have been one event. It all happened so yeah. quickly. Like what we just described, we've been talking for 20 minutes. We're about five, 10 minutes real time through the story at this point. Like this yeah. is happening fast and it will continue to happen fast because the next step as they're while they're fighting to save Lori's life uh, unsuccessfully, the security staff and the police are beginning the very short hunt for Dr. Mark Mark Daniel. As as like, people immediately they know who did it and you know what happened because Vivian had seen the whole thing. Um, 
doctors had described as they're rushing to respond to the code blue they, they had people had even seen him walking away covered in blood walking in the opposite direction of the recovery room when the code blue what happened so people like vivian saw her saw him stab her doctors saw him walking in the other direction uh, covered in blood the hospital security staff looked at the uh, security cameras and they have him arriving to the building at 8 38 a.m is when he gets there which is minutes before the stabbing occurs uh, and they have him leaving just about a half hour later so he pretty much got in got changed stabbed her and then walked out of the hospital covered in blood all within a 30 minute period and you know the, the distance even from like the parkade where the security camera films him to the recovery room that's probably like a seven or eight minute walk so this is yep. no doubt in my mind he went into work that day knowing she'd be there and be vulnerable the planet killing her like it's, a, it's such a bang 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 one after the other thing well, it sounds like he beelined it to the recovery room. He probably saw her name on the schedule and like that was his first stop. You don't, I don't work there, but you probably don't walk through the recovery room to access the operating room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just by the nature of the recovery room, it wouldn't be uh, a thoroughfare. They would have that as no. its own quiet area so that you'd have yeah. to intentionally walk into. Totally. Uh, so security staff have him coming and going. Uh, they know he left the hospital. As they're beginning to figure out and try to understand, you know, where he would have went, where could he be? Is he dangerous to other people? Police get a call from Mark's wife. So again, he was after Lori, who was his ex-girlfriend, who he dated while he was like kind of estranged from his wife. After him and Lori broke up, he got back with his wife. His wife calls the police to let them know that she just got off the phone with Mark. And he told her that he was on the waterfront in downtown Windsor and that he was about to kill himself. So it seems like he kind of called his wife and said goodbye. She called the police to report that. I don't know if she knew that he had just killed somebody else. But when police heard that call, they rushed to the waterfront. And just as she predicted, he is, uh, he is there in his car, unresponsive, motionless, with a syringe sticking out of his arm. So it's pretty clear what he was trying to do, but the story doesn't end here. You can walk us through what happens with, uh, with Mark Daniel from here. Well, he, so yeah, he injected himself with whatever he stole from the hospital mm -hmm. and, but he didn't die right away. He, he was taken to the hospital that Lori was being treated at, attempting mm -hmm. to be treated at. Mm -hmm. And they, they did get him like kind of stabilized and they got his vitals back but he never regained consciousness and he died in ICU like three days later. Yeah. And this is kind of a, a weird part of this is since it was a Saturday and there was only a couple doctors in the hospital after they finish with Lori and she doesn't make it, the next patient comes in and it's Dr. Daniel. It was the same doctors who were working to try to save him. And they had to make the decision. Like, are we going to treat this guy? Like he just killed our last patient. See, this, and, this is why I should never be a healthcare professional, because if I if I were one of those nurses, I'd be like, it's, well, it's break time. Eh. So, <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, this is really no rush. Why should we like, yeah. yeah, in a way, but also like just letting someone die like that is letting them get away with it. I'd want to keep them alive just true. so just to pay the price, like go out peacefully in your car with a syringe full of God knows what yeah. doesn't seem um, what he deserves. But 
in the event he did survive, he probably would have been found yeah. not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, that's a good because point. Because no one is more insane than this man. It seems that, yeah, that's a good, that's good. But either way, that just the having to do your job in this situation oh, as yeah. a doctor, that would be so hard. Yeah. Oh, and after his victim, like, just didn't make it, mm -hmm. the the timing was awful. Yeah. Like, it's it's it wasn't a good situation as is, mm -hmm. but having the patients so close together, too, it's mm -hmm. it would just be, yeah. it would be so hard. And now we know, as as you said, um, Laurie Dupont passed away that day from the stab wounds. Um, Mark, Doctor Mark Daniel, his vital signs came back, but he eventually died a couple days later. Um, he didn't make it as well. But another person's death is being blamed on Mark Daniel as well. So the the morning that Saturday morning when this all happened, there was a like a complicated eight hour long, I believe, surgery that was planned. Uh, it was a seventy six year old man who had an emergency surgery planned that Saturday morning to remove a brain tumor, a brain tumor, which had just suddenly started causing major problems. It made him like uh, unable to walk and disoriented. The tumor needed to be removed immediately. Obviously the surgery didn't have happen that morning because the anesthesiologist killed the nurse in the recovery room and everything else. So they, they had to delay this man's surgery to I think it was like 8 p.m. the next night. So it got yeah. delayed like a day and a half. He was continuing to decline up to the point of the surgery. Uh, the surgery went ahead. They managed to remove the tumor, but he never came out of it. And that man ended up dying. And his family firmly believes if the surgery had have happened when it was intended to, the emergency surgery, he would have had at least a fighting chance, if not survived. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's something like a an emergency brain tumor. Time is of the essence. Yeah, like we're doing this now. Yeah, they don't they don't schedule emergency brain surgery for fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So or for yeah. convenience, it's like this is a life saving right. thing. Do it asap. Yeah. We're going to have to do it Saturday. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's um another just kind of sad part of this, but we went through kind of the end of the story. Uh, we talked about the complicated relationship between Dr. Mark Daniel and Nurse Laurie DuPont, uh, but we've only scratched the surface of how bad and toxic and just horrifying that relationship is and how viciously he preyed upon her. It's a whole separate story. And it's hearing this, the story of her murder as a, you know, in a vacuum, the standalone little thing is is horrible. But hearing of everything that he put her through in the years leading up to it, it's just unimaginable and it's uh, and just everything about this guy like he like what an awful person he is the worst person he is he's mm. like actually one of the worst people to ever walk the planet mm. and like in the relationship out of the relationship nobody had a good thing to say about him it, it seems that he had he had a good reputation as a doctor like it seemed like he was good at doing his job but he also was riddled with complaints for making inappropriate comments or losing his temper on staff. And like, he seemed like a, like just like a prick with bad bedside manners, but something about the way he did the job and his qualifications, it gave him this position of power. Like it seemed like even the hospital management walked on tiptoes around him because he was an anesthesiologist, which I guess is a really important job at a hospital. Absolutely. And yeah, like he's a textbook, narcissist like mm -hmm. for sure 
nar- uh, what's it called? Borderline narcissistic personality disorder or something. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he's just, and like, I don't know if, well, I think doctors in general are treated like people kind of tiptoe around some of them just because they are like a, a doctor's a prestigious uh, profession. Yeah. Well, I I think doctors deserve respect. And then there are probably some who, um, who twist that in the wrong way and take advantage of their position. And I think Mark Daniel is one of the ones who took advantage of his position as a a doctor who there was great demand for, and he used that to his advantage to prey on people and be a, get away with it. It said he came from a respected family, which yeah. means his dad was a physician. Yeah, his dad was a family doctor that like was well known in Windsor. That just tells me that his dad was also probably an asshole and he had been getting away with this kind of behavior his entire life. Really? And he was that's I don't know. That's just what I assume. I, I saw it more as he was like this kind of nepo baby. Like he Oh yeah. Oh, that could be. He was probably raised around money and people probably respected Dr. Daniel from the beginning because they respected his father and he just he's like, I'm an important person. I've always been important. You know, and he just Maybe. That's that's kind of what I took it as, but Either way, it's uh, him and Laurie Dupont didn't seem like a match uh, at all to people who knew them. And from the very beginning, they weren't a match. So let's travel back to 2002, three years before the murder, and we'll follow their relationship uh, from beginning to end. As you described, Mark, you know, had a, a good reputation as a doctor, but also a reputation for flirting with the nurses, a reputation for being a bit of a, a braggart, uh, bragging about his personal accomplishments outside of work, uh, bragging about kind of like his possessions and wealth, but also complains a lot about his failing marriage, complaining often to the young nurses. Well, and it's probably never his fault. And this is all textbook narcissist. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of the nurses that he would brag and complain about his failing marriage to, one that got a lot of his attention was Laurie DuPont. She's was said by everyone who saw her to be a very beautiful, attractive woman. She was recently divorced and Mark just from the beginning seemed to have a thing for her. If he was, you know, if she was around she was going to get attention and it often wasn't like it wasn't even just uh social attention like him just making small talk he was actively like asking her out trying to get alone in a room with her cornering her and you know saying inappropriate things so he's just like preying on her and it was like it was borderline harassment so much that other nurses were encouraging her to file a complaint against him they're saying like saying like that's sexual harassment what he's doing to you you need to you know, report him, but she didn't want to do it probably because of the power imbalance between, you know, nurse DuPont and, you know, anesthesiologist, Dr. Daniel. Well, yeah, she didn't want to rock the boat and, and we'll get into a little bit more of this later, but she probably knew that a complaint's not going to go anywhere. So why waste your time? Yeah. Yeah. Cause complain, if you can, if you're going to complain about him, you got to know that he's going to be gone after your complaint because you definitely don't want to face him having just complained about him and nothing happened. So if she thought, you know, he's just going to get away with it, they're not going to do anything to Dr. Daniel. Yeah. Why complain? Well, that's just going to make everything worse. 
And it sounds like there had already been complaints lodged about him mm-hmm. because all this flirting was not reciprocated. And he's just obnoxious. Yeah. And if you see pictures of him, I saw a couple. He's just, he doesn't look like, you know, he doesn't look like this attractive, charming man. He just looks like a, a creep. Exactly. Cause I was like, I was like, okay, like maybe he's like super handsome and super charming. But no, the like, no. it sounds like he was neither of those things. And I saw a photo. He's definitely not handsome to me, mm. like, me not either. my cup of tea. No. So, yeah. I was just very, very confused, yeah. but. So early on, Laurie DuPont is not interested, avoids him for the most part, and the feelings aren't mutual of whatever's going on. But some, at some point along the way, she does give in. It, she doesn't go public with the fact that they're dating, but they, they do begin dating uh, during 2002. However, it's it's kind of like, they're like seeing each other. It's not like a serious thing. So they're not, um, you know, making public appearances together or like holding hands at the hospital. It's just um, kind of behind the scenes. They're together somewhat is is how it seems at first. Well, and like clearly he doesn't care about his marriage, but he was still married. Whether they were still living together or not, when he started his relationship with Lori, he was still very married. And when he ended it, he was still very married. And when he, exactly. So I imagine she kept it on the DL partly because of that and partly because she just kind of wasn't really into it. Yeah. It doesn't Um, seem like she was, at any point in the relationship, it doesn't seem like she was very proud to be with him. And it seemed like she knew that her friends wouldn't approve of it. Because as we go through the relationship, there's multiple times that she seems to back away from including him with friends or family or anything but yeah really like the what changes everything is this real estate deal so as, as we mentioned Lori dupont had recently been married uh recently been divorced she had a, she had one child a daughter named taylor after her divorce she wanted to get a house to you know to raise her daughter in this is in 2004 so she had been dating uh, mark dupont somewhat over the past year or so but in 2004 the opportunity to comes up to buy like the perfect home the exact home she wants to raise her daughter and it's at a price point that she can afford everything is going good she's going to buy it but then what happens is there's a competing offer someone else is interested in the home and the two kind of bid themselves out of Lori's price range so it's at the point where she's about to lose the home and Mark, he steps in and he offers to pay the difference. He says, you can still buy this house. I'll pitch in the rest of the money and we'll do it. Like, I'm not going to buy the house. It'll be your house. They just kind of arranged, uh, I think you'd call it like a private mortgage. Like, I'm going to lend you the money to buy the house and you can slowly pay me back as if I was, you know, the bank. That was the kind of agreement. And and that's just such a bad idea. Oh, absolutely. Like the the power imbalance there and yeah, they're just... He had different motives. Certainly. And I'm sure he did. And we'll see that as we go, because this deal, this real estate deal, and she, she accepts it out of desperation, I'm sure, because she just wants to get things settled and get life moving for her and her daughter. She accepts it, but he will use this against her right up until the very end. So again, initially the house is for, for Lori to raise her child in, but Mark's not cool with that. He wants to live in the home. He really pushes her to live in the home. She resists somewhat, but eventually agrees, but they come up with the agreement that it's my home. If anything ever changes between us or goes wrong, you know, no questions asked, you're just 
going to leave. And he agreed to that. However, uh, as we will come to learn is he had a way of dealing with kind of every roadblock that came up in their relationship. If there was any kind of disagreement that was major or if they were close to breaking up, Mark learned that he had a surefire way to get Lori, who by all accounts was a good person that cared about others. He had a surefire way to get her to take him back or see things from his point of view. And that was to threaten to kill himself, which is a very unhinged thing to do, to do. Unhinged, abusive, like manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, like, you know, if someone ever does that to you, first and foremost, call the police or call 911, because if they are actually a potential danger to themselves, they're going to need it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've all had friends who dated a psychopath and yeah. had this, had them threaten this. And very few people try, but he was one of them. He was one of the ones that actually followed through with attempting suicide mm -hmm. after yeah. he said he would. Yeah. Uh, apparently there've been multiple times that he threatened it and several times that he tried it. We'll, we'll talk about one specific time because it's a suicide attempt that will lead to the breakup, but there's still a lot more to the relationship before, before we get there. Their relationship, it starts off slow and kind of behind the scenes for the most part in 2002. It's around 2004 that the house purchase happens. At that point, Mark moves into the home. Almost immediately of hi after him moving in, things are changing for Lori and her friends notice it. She's much more withdrawn. She's not taking part in you know, socializing and stuff. She's letting her appearance go. It, it's just, I guess I would just describe it as like showing the outward appearance of depression and being unhappy. So as that's all going on, Mark is seemingly sinking his teeth into her quite a bit, but it will reach ahead in, uh, in 2004 with one of the more awkward engagements. Uh, Mark is going to propose to Lori and he's going to do it much like he always does in a position that gives him the advantage over her. He waits until Lori and Mark are invited to a birthday party at Lori's parents' house. Um, during the birthday party, the whole family is sitting at the kitchen table. And it's at that point that Mark pulls out the box with a ring in it and kind of pushes it across the table to Lori in front of everybody. And the reaction as I hear it described, it's a seems like a very awkward moment. As he pushes the ring to Lori and she opens it and sees the ring, her daughter sitting next to her, Taylor, who isn't a big fan of Mark because when Mark moved in, everything changed. You know, the dog's not allowed in the bedroom. Um, Taylor's not allowed sleeping in the bed with her mom, which she enjoyed doing. There are two of the major changes. When the daughter Taylor sees the ring and realizes it's what's happening, she gets up and runs away from the table. She takes off. And Lori's father confronts Mark with, aren't you married? Like, what, what is happening here? Aren't you still married? Which this this reaction totally backfired because he proposed in front of everyone for two reasons. One, because she can't say no, mm -hmm. or she probably wouldn't say no. And two, he wanted to look good in front of everyone else. But everyone was like, this guy is weird. Yeah. As but, hell. Yeah. But it happens. She agrees. Yeah. I, 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 I can't understand that, but I can't put myself in the mind of like an abused, manipulated 
person and it seems like that's what was happening here but oh definitely the the house purchase and that whole thing like me as an outsider not in this relationship i'm like no 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 terrible idea the engagement terrible idea yeah from from an outside perspective i think everyone said that terrible um, idea yeah but she she agreed so the engagement is in place they have plans to get married they're living together lori is continuing to be letting herself go and withdrawn from friends and family mark's next step to further sink his teeth into her seems to be what will lead to their breakup their their permanent breakup what mark wants is he has a problem with like Lori really enjoys her job working as a nurse in the recovery room. She's friends with the other nurses. And that is probably her escape, leaving her house, going to the recovery room and just probably sitting, having coffee and chatting with the other nurses. That's like her, her probably her happy place at this point in her life. Um, Mark found that she was working odd hours, staying late, t taking overtime when it was available. He didn't like that. And he wanted her to take a new job or leave that job, what he wanted her to do was take a job working as like, seemed like kind of like an assistant to him in in his room, which would have, it would have only been a part-time job. So she would have been working less. And when she was working, she would have been reporting to him. He really wanted her yeah. to take that. And so if, you know, if the house purchase happens, I'm sure she's like, shit, I shouldn't have done that. The engagement yeah. happens, she's probably a part of her is like, why did I do that? I think this is the one where she sticks her feet in the sand and she's like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. And yeah. Well, when it comes to your livelihood, like, and so Lori was well, like, and he hated that. Mm, like bet. he, he absolutely hated that, which is why he didn't like her being there. And yeah, like working odd hours and stuff, taking call and whatever else she probably like she was a smart woman so yeah she knew there was writing on the wall and that she had to get out of that so she probably was like no i need my i need my income i hope she had a secret bank account and she was planning on bailing yeah i hope so because even with the like the engagement and stuff you you say Lori was well liked we, we've already said he wasn't what she was yeah. doing is he would brag around the hospital like that's my wife you know we're engaged now we got all this big stuff what she was doing if he wasn't around she would turn her ring around so the diamond would face the palm of her hand so it would look just like a you know like a more modest ring or whatever yeah so it was like it was so bad that you know she was doing that stuff at work and whatnot but uh. anyway he she didn't accept his offer to quit her current job and work in a position where she would be more so reporting to him and working less hours. So her entire life would be controlled by him essentially. Yeah. yeah. So she, she fought for that. Uh, he did not like that. And he kind of demanded a sort of like family meeting about it. They had plans to uh, sit home this, this particular day. I don't know. I think it was a Sunday. We're going to meet Sunday morning and we're going to discuss this situation. That does that's there is no situation to discuss. No, like <laughs> I feel God. like that's probably about what she said because this meeting resulted in pretty intense disagreement that sees Lori leave the house. She takes off like done with you. Whatever happens in this meeting, she's like, I'm not quitting my job. I'm out of here. Leaves the house uh, upset, which is you know pretty good thing to do if you're upset with your partner. Get out, of, get away for a little bit. Yep. 
She does, but she shows up back at the house. I think it's like six hours, five or six hours later. So like, you know, spent most of the day just doing errands and shopping and probably some retail therapy. She comes home, walks in the house, probably thinking like, oh shit, like here we go. You know, yeah. what's going to happen now? She walks in the house and she finds Mark sitting on his bed, their bed. And he's holding a syringe. And as she walks in the room, he just simply says, look what you did. And he sticks a syringe in his arm and injects something and just collapses to the floor in front of her. And like, what a drama queen. He probably sat there for the whole six hours waiting for her to come home like yeah, that. He did. Well, he part of the, one of the things he did is he wrote a series of notes. He had like kind of like suicide note, goodbye notes to different people that were all on the bed with him. And the notes would explain why he did it. And he was blaming Laurie for ruining his life and so on and making him do this. So he, you know, he clearly blamed her. But here's where it gets interesting. This is only... You know, we're, we're just months before her murder. This is early 2005. She'd be killed in November of 2005. But here's what's interesting. Um, or one of the weird twists. He does this. He attempts to kill himself in the bedroom, falls to the floor. Lori calls 911 to say what has happened. They're sending people, but she knows it's going to take them a couple minutes to get there. And he's dying on the floor. Uh, Lori's mom just happens to be like next door. At a, I don't know if Lori's parents live next door or what, but her mom is next door. So Lori calls her mom, and who is a nurse, and is like, "Get over here. We have to like help him. This is what happened." So Lori's mom uh, gets to the house. Her and Lori uh, try to stabilize him while waiting for you know first responders to show up, and they're credited with saving his life. Whatever they did to keep him alive, that without them it's unlikely that he would have made it so she basically saved his life a couple months uh, before he did this bizarre it's unbelievable now things are changing because his this suicide attempt is different it's not like it wasn't like threats or anything like that he actually went for it and he was in rough shape so he's sent to the hospital to be treated but he's also going to be put into psychiatric care and it's at this point that is kind of leading up to the murder because he's taken off work and like he has like a couple months where he can't work because he's receiving psychiatric care as a result of this this um, suicide attempt. But this gives Lori her first break from him in a good amount of time. So it's now she's free from him, at least temporarily, to tell, you know, her mom and some friends, you know, exactly what's been going on and, you know, and how bad this is so it's now all you know very clear what's going on to everybody so this is her her chance to leave him and she takes it when he calls her from the hospital after recovering from the suicide attempt she tells him it's over they're done uh he doesn't like that despite being in a hospital bed he's not cool with that he continues to call her so much she she changes her phone number and this is 2005 so it was like a landline it wasn't just mm -hmm. a cell phone Actually, here's another way to describe how bad it was. Uh, it was so bad that Lori's mom went to the hospital where he was being treated to meet with him to tell him, like, stop calling. It's over. She doesn't want to talk to you. It's, you know, it's done. You're done with her. Uh, to have your mom go to the hospital to meet your fiance who had just tried to kill herself. That's a, like, that's a pretty intense moment. Right. And like, they're not teenagers. Mm -hmm. They're like, this woman's in her mid 30s. 
Mm -hmm. Like that's um, oh, crazy. Yeah. He spends about two months in hospital after the suicide attempt before he's uh, free to leave. And he goes back with his wife. I want to know how that conversation went. And like, I, it, I wasn't in that position. So it's easy for me to say, but like, oh my God, never. I wouldn't even have opened the door. Yeah. Like, I, I just wonder like this wife to take him back. Like, I wonder what kind of hold he had on her to be able to get yeah. her to be okay with the fact that he got engaged to this other girl, bought her a house, moved in with her, tried to kill himself for her or about well, her. There's no way that this was the first time he had cheated on her. Yeah. Or did something nuts. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Mark moves back, gets out of the hospital, gets back in with his wife. Uh, a part of their getting their relationship back on track is Mark and his wife uh, decide like immediately to go on a cruise together, like, an, you know, an all inclusive kind of boat cruise thing. Oh, I guess I guess he he had the time and the money. So why not? Yeah, I guess get it gets a break from work. And this is what he does. But it's pretty clear that he is not over Lori. He makes several attempts to call her from the boat. Oh, my gosh. She won't take like his, his calls. poor wife. That poor woman. Yeah. Um, not only was he calling Lori because she wouldn't take his call. He was calling her parents, some of her friends. And they were saying, like, he, she's done with you. Let it go. Imagine a 50-year-old man behaving this way. Oh, my God. It's got the, like, clearly he's obsessed with her. And as we go here, like, we're, we're now leading into the months up to her murder. It yeah. only gets worse and more unhinged. That's, that's the thing about the story. Despite starting with this brutal murder, we're continuing to just ramp up and up and up and up back to it. And it's like we're getting, we're getting close. Because in April of 2005, it's about time for Mark to begin uh, to return back to work slowly. So he was, the suicide attempt happened at the beginning of 2005. A couple months later, he's now starting to slowly work back to, to getting into the hospital. Well, and, and what, what really annoys me about this part of the story is that he had a couple of his psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, give him like a raving review. Being mm -hmm. like, oh, like he's doing so well. And it's like, is he really that convincing or was he friends with these people? Yeah, I wonder, hey? I wonder if they had some sort of history because he's clearly not mentally sound. Like there's no. something very clearly wrong with him mentally. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how he was cleared by more than one professional. Yeah. He can't be that convincing. Yeah. And it's like as uh, disturbing as these glowing reviews from like psychiatrists and stuff are. Also, the way hospital management deals with his return to work and the stuff he gets up to is even more disturbing. Because as, as soon as he's back in the hospital, he's back at Lori. He tried to confront her on multiple occasions, but she refuses to talk to him. Good. Um, uh, but here's where it really gets bad. At one one point, just after his uh, after he's back in the in the hospital, he confronts her. She won't talk to him. We don't know exactly what they said to one another, but the next day, as Lori leaves work, she finds a photo um, just under her windshield wiper blade of her car, and it's a photo of her semi-nude in a some kind of a precarious position. Uh, right away, she knew what was going on, and she knew it was Mark. So I'm thinking he probably threatened her with something like this. In yeah, 
she's seeing that he's going through with it, but he ramps it up because he puts the photo under her windshield wiper one day. The next day, he goes to Lori's father's office and tells her father, I want the money from the house that I gave for Lori to buy the house. If she doesn't give me the money, I'm going to put photos of her all around town of her, of naked photos of her. And to show Lori's dad that she's serious, that he's serious. He shows Lori's dad the photos and what the photos are. It's not, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, like homemade porn or something. It's like photos of her, like getting out of the shower or using the bathroom where she, in some of them, like she doesn't even realize he's taking these pictures of her. Right. They weren't like nudes that she sent to him. They were, yeah, him being weird and taking them of her without her knowledge bizarre and they and it would have had it been at a time when their relationship was better so it's like what the yeah. hell is he up to and he doesn't only show up at Lori's dad's office to do this he also calls Lori's mom and gives her the same spiel if i don't get that money these photos that i have of her naked or semi-naked are going to be put all over town and that has to be one of the most unhinged things you could ever do absolutely and like again i know i just said this but like imagine a 50 year old man acting like this well, he's and somehow getting cleared by psychiatrists bizarre mm -hmm. him going at Lori and confronting her was one thing but i think going to her parents is uh well crossing the line and that's what event what finally convinces her to go to hospital management to let them know what's what's going on and to uh, tell them that he basically blackmailed her the management of the hotel confront dr daniel and he denies it, but there's no question that he did it because yes, he denies it to the hospital management to not have it affect his job. But at the same, but at the same time, there's kind of legal stuff happening about the ownership of the house, and in the legal documents, he admits to having done this. So it's like when, as far as the legal case, he's like, "Yeah, this is what I did," and you know, I wasn't actually going to release them. I just wanted to scare her out of desperation to get my money. To hospital staff management, he's like, "No, never happened." outright lie which doesn't surprise me because he's probably lied through his teeth to them before yeah and and i think he feels like he runs the hospital oh totally and it's they're it's, like they need me yeah he's like they need me i'm important yeah the way the hospital handles it initially is uh they don't take it too seriously they they tell the security guards uh simply keep an eye out on the recovery room operating room area because there's kind of a domestic thing happening there they're not like you know watch them or hang out there just if you see anything you know you may need to separate them or you know just keep an eye out it's about as as far as it goes separate to going to the hospital staff also goes to the courthouse um in attempting to get a restraining order or like a peace bond that would require him to stay away from her and not contact her I could talk a bit about this because I sat through some of these peace bond hearings before, but when you try to get a, like a peace bond or a restraining order, as people call them, you file a paper at the courts and that paper is presented to the person that you are, that you are saying like needs to stay away from me. Uh, that person can do it the easy way, which is sign it and say like, sure, I accept it. I won't go near them. Or they can do it the hard way and say, I don't accept this. Uh, a judge will need to decide and we'll have a trial and the, the judge will decide if what I've done requires me to stay, you know, 50 feet away from them or, you know, whatever the conditions are. Mark Daniel does not take the easy way. He wants to go to trial. He doesn't think he should have this uh, peace bond. The courts uh, being ever so speedy, they schedule the hearing for the peace bond 
in December, which turns out to be a month after Mark kills her. So it's it's April 11th. She requests the peace bond. They have a trial for December to find out if it's valid or if they're going to have one. So that would give him freedom to approach her and, you know, whatever, bother her, oh. stalk her, harass her up until then, which is very uh, awful. Um, well, much like the legal system, the healthcare administration system, and in many places in healthcare, nothing moves fast. Mm-hmm. So you can file as many complaints as you want. And if something ever comes of it, it's not going to happen the next week or the mm-hmm. next, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, we'll see that with kind of the rest of this story because it's the hospital starts kind of getting involved in this dispute. They kind of tiptoe into getting involved in the situation between. But like bare minimum. Absolute bare minimum. One thing they do is they, um, remove uh, Dr. Daniel's access somewhat to the hospital through his like his swipe card where he swipes in. I think they did something where he could only swipe into certain areas where where it would be necessary for him for his job. And maybe he could only access the hospital like when he was scheduled to work. So they did some stuff reducing his access, but he was still able to return to work and work, you know, right alongside where Lori DuPont was. And not only that, it's like his return to work was a complete shock to people. He, the fellow nurses that work with Lori, they just showed up for work one day and on the schedule for surgeries for that day, they saw, oh, Dr. Daniel's back. The, after trying to kill himself and stalking Lori, he's, you know, he's working today. And like, not a word was said to anyone. It was just like, make this work. Sorry. Yeah. Actually, I don't recall them saying sorry. <laughs> no, I don't think they did because so. in fact, they w- went way less than sorry. I think what they did is the, it's at this point when Mark returns put their to work. Head in the sand. Yeah. Well, the hospital management seemed to, but the hospital staff, specifically the nurses that work with Lori, realizing like we need to protect her. It's at this point that they start kind of forming this unofficial buffer where if Dr. Daniel comes, the other nurses know like, okay, we got to be the ones to handle it. And Lori will stay yeah. at the nursing station. So that's the kind of agreement that the nurses have. The nurses do complain to hospital management and are told that, you know, like this is a domestic disagreement between the two of them. It's none of our business. We need to stay out of it. That's for the most part seemed to be the, um, the attitude they, they Pretty talk much. about it. And, and like you can, you can restrict as much access as you want. The recovery room is accessible from the OR, like, from my experience, two open doors, like you don't mm-hmm. need to swipe in and out because the anesthetist is the one that rolls the patient to recovery. It would be, yeah, like they can restrict his access and all this, but the the spot that he needs to be is the part that she works in. It's like the That's worst correct. part. Like, yeah. yeah. The, the other nurses are complaining about him. Lori has had complained about him. Staff knows what's going on, but he's continuing to cause trouble, not even just with her. With There are other pl- complaints coming in about Dr. Daniel uh, twice in June. So he would have only been back like two months, twice in June and once in July, three separate nurses complained of him making sexual comments towards them or touching them inappropriately. That didn't cause much of a problem. Um, but it's going to come back to something you just said. Another thing that happened is on August 19th, another physician in the hospital went to hospital management and gave them the warning saying someday Dr. Daniel is going to come in here and go postal. Like people noticed he was like, this guy's nuts. Quickly spiraling. 
And here's what's interesting. So these different um, complaints uh, from the other nurses and staff of the sexual comments and inappropriate touching, uh, there was going to be kind of, I don't know if it'd be a disciplinary or investigative, investigative meeting um, with the uh, between hospital management and Dr. Daniel, but that too would be scheduled for, I think like a month after he killed Lori. So, you know, the hospital, the courts, it's all moving way too slow to get ahead of this horrific event that's on its way. The The last kind of attempt to save Lori is one she did on her own. Another job came up in the hospital that, um, it was in another, like, I think it was a similar job to what she had, but it was in another area of the hospital, which would have put her away from Mark. She applied for it. And just before her death, like, I think it was like a month or so before her death, she found out she didn't get that job. So if anything, that was one of her last attempts to put herself out of this situation. Just sad. Super sad. Well, and like with all these other complaints, there's a paper trail. So there was a paper trail before all of this was happening because other people had lodged complaints. And now there's even more complaints. You'd think that they would not only jump on the opportunity to do so, but be able to take action against this guy and be like, you have X amount of complaints against you. You know, you're, you're taking off the schedule or you're whatever. We'll let the college deal with it. But, or at the very least, if things aren't working out because of this idiot, they should have transferred Lori themselves to another yeah. unit, whether her seniority was whatever or whether there was room or they needed to put her somewhere else at, at the same pay grade and whatever. Yeah, I, I would have thought like if she had said to her, the hospital management, like I have a restraining order application against the guy right here that I'm always around and we don't have our trial until December. Can I just just reassign me to a different spot? Exactly for six months or whatever. Like that seems, she shouldn't even have That's to what ask. Should have happened. That's like, that would have been such an obvious thing to do or even just give her unpaid leave. Like if you don't want to screw with this important doctor, just give yeah. this one nurse a couple months off. And it Ugh. just seems so obvious that, that there is a solution there. Now she doesn't get that job, but her last week we're, we're, we're just catching up to the events that, that played out in November in the recovery room. Her last week before her death was a week where everything seemed to be improving for her. Do you, do, you, do you want to walk through some of the things that were happening in her life during her last week? Well, she had met a new man. His name was Norbert. And they were right. <laughs> His name is Norbert Hirth. That sounds like a character okay. from... Like, I don't know, like, uh, what's the Zelda, Headless Horseman? A video no. game? Yeah, no, the, oh. you know, the Headless Horseman. Ichabob Crane and his uh, friend Sleepy Norbert Hollow. Hirth. Yeah, it sounds okay. like something from that. <laughs> but anyway, she met a man named Norbert Hirth. And yeah, things were going really well. Um, she ended up just like not even a week prior, like five days prior, she found out that she was pregnant with this man's baby. And I believe they orchestrated to like elope, go get married. Yeah, on a distant, they they went to after finding out she was pregnant, they went to a um, travel agent to plan a Disney cruise to bring that's right the two of them and to bring her daughter Ty Taylor onto the Disney cruise. Uh, she would have had to come out of school for a couple of weeks. Uh, they were going to take her out of school for a few weeks, go on this Disney cruise, and get married. Yeah, so things were looking up and fairly quickly. 
So that was nice, but it would be short-lived. It was yeah, not even a week later. It was November 7th. She found out she was pregnant. Probably like within a day or two, she was at the travel agent trying to book the Disney cruise on November 12th. So five days after she found out she was pregnant is uh, was the Saturday shift where Dr. Daniel. Sounds like she her. went to the travel agent before she went to the doctor. <laughs> like yeah. she was hurrying this along. <laughs> well, it's just exciting news. Well, right. I think but you can relate. That's what made me like, and that just adds another tragic layer onto this. But the fact that she was murdered so soon after she found out she was pregnant makes me wonder if, and she may have not had a chance to go to the doctor, but that makes me wonder if this guy was keeping tabs on her medical file somehow. Mm. Oh, if if Dr. Daniel was. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about that. It is said that he didn't know much about her relationship uh, okay. with, with Mr. Hearth, and they kept it fairly private, probably because she was being harassed and um sure. blackmailed and threatened by her ex um and and i don't know if it was if they've ever learned if he knew if dr daniel knew about their engagement or the pregnancy but you, you know what i think it was is i think this was this was the first saturday that they worked together dr daniel and dr dupont and nurse dupont i think that's what what it was it's just this is the day that he, he saw he an came, opportunity and took it and took it but i think he came to work knowing like he he would have had to bring this dagger or whatever to work unless he had it stashed in in the hospitals somewhere but he is that unhinged but yeah it was it was fairly premeditated well and he had drugs ready to go to oh, to give himself that's that's right yeah because he he was had this all this all just kind of worked for him um in that regard but well, that's um, another that's another thing that kind of confused me so the first suicide attempt he injected himself with something with a syringe that tells me he's stealing drugs mm -hmm. which is a big no-no which is which like should, he should be fired which should be another reason to yeah at the very least keep him out of the operating room or mm. access to drugs. It's really hard to get a physician's, um, like, not rights taken away, but their privileges taken away, I should mm. say. But um, yeah, it's like next to impossible to get one fired. Oh, but yeah. yeah. I, I, I think, like, uh, if you take, if you think of suicide, but take it out of the context of this whole domestic violence thing, that's a delicate issue because it borders on mental health and depression yeah. and all this stuff. Um, so I think if they treated it just as like, he went through a mental crisis and did that, like, maybe they didn't want to throw the book on him for the book at him for that reason. But when you add kind of the layer of like, and it was all in the context of domestic violence, yeah. it's, it's such a, this is just such a horrible, horrible story of, and she just seems so helpless in this, like, yeah, trapped, helpless. And yeah, it's just, it's so tragic because there were so many points where it could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every attempt she made to do something about it was like, yeah, in eight months, we'll have that meeting and you'll have this hearing in eight months. Not that I think he would have obeyed it, like the if, if no. he had a restraining order or whatever it was, but it's still, it's something like if she's, she had, the only thing that really was working was like the other nurses helping her out. And the, the one time she got with him in a position where they weren't there to help that was when he was able to kill her yeah safety in numbers i guess oh certainly if there was which is so unfortunate like 
and it's I would normally in like a weird, awful situation like this, I would say, you know, nobody probably thought it would come to this, but literally everyone did. Mm-hmm. Like even another doctor was like, he is going to go postal one day, just a warning. Yeah. And it fell on deaf ears. Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of other stories. I definitely see some commonalities between this story and the story of Gabriel Wartman, who is the gunman behind the Nova Scotia mass shootings. It, there's some similarities there. It seems like it's a, a narcissist who had a woman that he was able to control and did not want to let that go. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just that I feel so horrible for everybody involved in this story. Lori's parents were in the middle of all this like they were so involved in every every bit of it like they're there yeah. for you know the engagement they're there saving him when he tries to kill himself i couldn't imagine the regret they have and like the hindsight's always 2020 they yeah. they're probably like oh we, like we should have said this we should have done this and it's out of their hands so and it it definitely shines a light on workplace like stalking and domestic violence within a workplace with especially uh with a the power imbalance thrown in as well like i'm sure so many people would have encountered whether it's a a doctor or a manager at the office like we do our series encounter with encounters with creeps we have a lot of episodes and a lot of stories that come to us that involve someone with an imbalance of power coming on to someone and it's like this story easily could fit in one of those if it had ended with and then i quit the job and never saw this guy again yeah exactly case, oh there are probably so many nurses that have a creep story of specifically about dr mark daniel i bet and you just know he walked into the or and numerous nurses were like Ugh, oh him again daniel's here yeah like, <laughs> or like they saw the schedule and were like oh i'm on uh, call with that clown yeah certainly yeah um I'm surprised that this case isn't more often discussed. We said this at the beginning. I'm surprised it's not more often discussed in hospitals or even workplaces in Canada because it's no. like whether or not it's it's a hospital, any workplace, this the same story could take place. And this could be a Saturday at some office or, you know, a meeting room at a call center or the kitchen at a restaurant. Like it, it could be in any or a convenience store and the owner comes in. You know, it's uh, any one of those places. It's just this, you know, if you work for somebody and they're, they want to do harm to you or try to take advantage of you, it's like they're in such a position that they're able to in a lot of cases. And this is, this is certainly one of them. And this is a, um, an example of how bad it can get. Yeah. And so quickly, mm-hmm. like, oh, just, uh, and as- yeah, like. It's how you can't predict something like that. Mm -hmm. And as far as lawsuits, I know that I believe the hospital settled with Lori DuPont's family. um, But yeah, I I think nothing's going to nothing's going to rectify this. Yeah. The whole like um, applying for the peace bond mixed with while we're waiting for the trial, you're still working with this guy. There's that should never be able to happen. There should be some kind of like intermediate kind of peace bond where it's like until the you know, the actual hearing, you have to do this, that, and the other thing. Although, yeah. but again, not that I think that would have changed anything, but it's, it's just this idea that she's just fed to the wolves with the only people that can protect her are her fellow nurses. Yeah, exactly. Off, off the record. Mm-hmm. But if, yeah, exactly. if there's anything we've learned from all the true crime that we've, you know, researched, it's restraining orders do nothing. 
Seriously. Zero. Zip. Nothing. Yeah. They only do something to kind of like, they're only effective if if the person you're, that's bothering you is like, uh, doesn't want to break the rules and doesn't want to get themselves in trouble or whatever. But in Mark Daniels case, it seemed like he was like, he had no problem dying. He wanted to just take Oreo before he did. So like a peace bond's not going to, yeah, it's not going to stop him. He's He's like, I don't care. Yeah. I'm just going to kill her before I kill myself. Yeah. And this, Oh, he had nothing to lose. No. And this money about the house, that's irrelevant. Like this guy had a lot of money, the 140 grand ish that he lent her. That wasn't going to change anything for him. That was just something that, allowed him to stay in contact with her and, and a justification oh, yeah. for bothering her. If she had to give him that money cash the first time he asked for it, that wouldn't have changed anything. It would have been something else. Yep. And it was just another way to control her. He didn't care about the money. He didn't probably even want it back. It was it was just a way that he could sink his claws into her even further. I want to thank you for joining Madeline and I for this episode of Nighttime. Now, this story is a very difficult one to imagine, but I think it can serve as a cautionary tale. If someone seems dangerous, don't take any chances. And when someone shows their true colors, believe them. Now, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode, but before we part, let me end here with some thanks. First, a big thanks to Madeline for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. A big shout out to Monty Data, who contributes the music for this episode, and LJ from the Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides the intro and outro voiceovers. And then lastly, but most importantly, a massive thank you goes out to each and every one of you listening, as without your interest and your support, nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. Now on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Gail, Adam, and Tiffany, I appreciate you. And for anyone else who'd like to show your support for the show, you can help us out here in a variety of ways. First of all, a premium feed subscription costs just a couple dollars a month, and that money funds the creation of the show. But perhaps more attractively, the premium feed gives you the episodes two days early, gives them to you ad-free, and gives you access to a full back catalog of episodes. If that sounds like something you'd like, you can go premium right now at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And even if you don't want to go premium, you can still help the show out by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting all your like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If anyone listening has any story ideas or wants to give feedback or an opinion on an episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. We hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. I mean, Laurie DuPont faced something horrific. And to me, what came out of that, I mean, you know, I think it's important for her loved ones to know that while this tragedy happened, that things are coming out of her situation to prevent it from happening again. You know, just one person out there can make such a difference. They can, um, they can just break that terrible chain of events that can lead to death.